I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with Maria Konnikova, uh, the brilliant author of uh, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. And of course, I have her upcoming book here in front of me, The Confidence Game, uh, Why We Fall for It Every Time. Maria, it's great to see you. It's so great to see you, Mike. I'm very excited. So, you know, one of the wonderful stories at the opening of your first book was the story you tell about your father and, and the way he told your bedtime stories and how that inspired you. Could you share that with us? Of course. Um, we had this wonderful tradition from you know, when I was four or so, where every night my dad would read to us every weekend night, not not every night of the week. And we would all look forward to this so much, especially, I think, especially I did. Um, and one day, I remember this so well, he took this huge book from the shelf that I'd always seen. It was kind of a dark red cover. And it looked very intriguing. And it was... Sherlock Holmes. It was the Conan, uh, Conan Doyle's complete works of Sherlock, uh, complete stories about Sherlock Holmes, and it was just this huge, huge volume where all of them were collected in Russian. And from that first night, I basically wanted him to read to us every single night of the week. He didn't, of course, but it was incredibly atmospheric. We had a fireplace going in my mind. Every night was the fireplace. I'm guessing that at some point the fireplace stopped because it couldn't have always been winter. But in my mind, there's always a fireplace and he smoked a pipe that was called the Sherlock Holmes pipe. And these were just absolutely engrossing narratives and I fell in love. And then there was one story that just really, really captured my mind. And it wasn't because of the mystery, and it wasn't because it was particularly enthralling in terms of narrative, but it was this one moment where Holmes asked Watson how many steps led up to 221B Baker Street, um, and Watson didn't know. And... Holmes tells him at that stage, well, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And I was just flabbergasted. And I, th- I made him stop reading so that I could count the steps in our own house because I had no idea how many there were. And at this stage in my life, I think I was a little bit iffy on whether Sherlock Holmes was real or not, so I wanted to make sure that when I met him, <laughs> I'd be able to tell him how many steps there were in my house. Um, so I missed the point about seeing and seeing versus observing, because what I did from that point on was count steps everywhere I went. But that's what stuck with me, and that's, out of all the stories, that one scene really... I would come back to over and over long after I'd left Sherlock Holmes behind because I was in my 20s when I reread when I reread them again but I never forgot the stairs and was that something you believe that a Sherlock Holmes type mind is that something that they've trained themselves to do or is it kind of a form of autism where they just can't help but you know have a singular focus on everything that's around them I think it's a I think it's a combination of the two 
there's definitely a lot of training to it. And I, I like to stress that when we, when Conan Doyle introduces us to Sherlock Holmes, he's already a fully formed individual. He's old, he's been doing this for a long time. Not old, he's older, he's a grown-up. Um, and so he's been training these powers of observation for decades. Um, but I'm sure that he also was predisposed, in some sense, from childhood, to think in these sorts of ways. And then he just became better and better and better at it through training. Um, and that said, I don't think you necessarily need that almost... I, I don't want to say autistic, but that just very clean and single-minded focus um, from birth. I think it's something that you can quite easily learn to do um, just by realizing that you have to be present. Right. Well, one of the things I, I never fully appreciated when I was reading the books that, that I, I guess, realized when I read yours was that one of the purposes of Watson is a kind of a, a foil in that you really contrast the two systems of thinking. There's a Sherlock way of thinking and there's a Watson way of thinking. Could, could you explain a little bit about the differences? Um, absolutely. First, I would like to start off with an apology to Watson. Um, <laughs> I actually value him highly and he's a doctor and very intelligent. Um, and I had to s set up a stark contrast And if anything, in, in the 21st century, Watson's been reinterpreted actually as, absolutely. as the analog of Sherlock. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so with apologies to Watson, <laughs> um, the way that you can think about these is their system Watson, which is kind of the way that we normally go through life. And that's kind of almost unthinking. You just kind of do your, do your thing, you're reflexive, you react to things, um, you're more, I don't want to say necessarily impulsive, but just less analytical right. it's it's your normal way of going about things like when you're you know driving for instance and you forget to pick up the groceries because you're you just know you're going home right. and so all of a sudden you get home and you say oh man I forgot the groceries because your mind was just not there or when you're it doesn't even have to be driving just going through any sort of daily routine you can forget what you read forget what you wrote in an email 10 minutes ago because right. you're not actually paying attention you're thinking about what you're having for dinner I mean how many meetings have you sat through where at the end of the meeting you say I don't remember who said what and what we even talked about that's system Watson it's, it's, it's not that when you're in system Watson you're not thinking no it's that you're not analyzing and you're not really being reflective Right. you're being more reactive than proactive in a sense um, and it's not a bad system because a lot of times that's all you need you know there's no reason and we'll talk about system homes in a second and system homes takes a lot of effort and it takes up much more energy than system Watson and there's no reason to always engage it because then you'd be exhausted um, and you would never just kind of relax and sit back. There are lots of moments when System Watson is totally fine. You are thinking, as, as you say, you're just not critically thinking. You're not, you're not really making an effort to engross yourself 
in in the outcome, right. if that makes sense. And then you have System Holmes, which is illustrated beautifully by the master detective. And that system, as opposed to the reflexive system of Watson, is more reflective. So you actually take the time and the effort and the energy to focus and to understand what's going on, to consciously attend to it, and to decide what you think about it. And so it's a very effortful process. Um, it takes a lot of cognitive resources because you suddenly snap into focus and you say, okay, you know, I need to really be present and pay attention to this and this really is important. I'm going to be fully in our conversation. No, I'm not going to be suddenly checking my phone over here and thinking about something else. You, you actually call it mindfulness. Yes, it, and I think, I think that's what the original definition in psychology of mindfulness is. And one, one way of contrasting System Holmes and Watson is Watson is mindlessness and Holmes is mindfulness. And the simplest definition of mindfulness is presence hmm. um, and is actually being fully present, which means fully attending to everything. Um, and not letting your mind drift away. Mm. And the second it drifts away, um, to kind of bring it back uh, to the present moment. My, one of my favorite examples of mindlessness actually doesn't come from Sherlock Holmes, but from Ellen Langer's work. And Ellen Langer is a Harvard psychologist who first start, started studying mindfulness um, back in the 70s um, in, in, in psychology. And she tells this story about how um, she was buying something in a store and she handed the clerk her credit card and the clerk looked at it and says, your credit card isn't signed, you need to sign it. Um, and so she took a pen and signed it and then the clerk gave her her receipt and she signed it and then the clerk compared the signature on the credit card to the receipt and they matched. <laughs> and that is classic mindlessness. You're just <laughs> you're just kind of going through and you're not actually stopping to think. You know, the clerk didn't even realize that it was totally insane. It was just I know that I'm supposed to do this and so I'm just not going to analyze it. Mindfulness, of course, would dictate that you realize that, okay, if the credit card isn't signed, you either ask for another card or, or you say you need to sign it before you can use it and we'll need cash. But you definitely don't compare two signatures that, <laughs> that were signed right in front of you. The, the, the genius of Sherlock, though, is that he goes beyond observation and he's got quite a, a detailed process of, of, of taking information and sorting it. And, and you call it his brain attic. Yes. Um, um, so Conan Doyle calls it his brain attic. Right. Um, Is I, it the same as a, a memory cathedral? Um, it's similar. Um, the reason why it's similar is that um, they both have to do with memory. Right. And they both give you an example of a physical space, this metaphor that will help you. So they're both mnemonics. Yes. But the difference is that Holmes's brain attic is more about how you store knowledge overall, whereas Memory Palace or Cathedral um, is about how you store very specific 
information so that you can recall it. Right, because I used to love the stories of the famous Roman orators yes. walking through a city looking at architecture because was, they were creating mnemonics to remember their yes, speech. absolutely. But, but this is very much a linear um, recollection process. Exactly, um, and <clears throat> the Holmesian attic is more about, it's more high level. I think a memory cathedral is a subset of the attic. So the what, is, what, is this, what, is this, what is the structure of the attic? So the attic is all about how we take in information, how we store that information, and how ultimately we're going to access that information. Um, and so the first step is encoding, which means what are you actually going to put into your memory attic? And Holmes has this wonderful speech to Watson where he says, well, Watson, you know, there's the lazy lumberjack attic where you just basically put anything up there. That's like yours, dear Watson. (laughs) (laughs) My attic, of course, is pristine. I know where everything is. And I think about every single piece of information before I stick it up there because the test for me is is this something that I will actually need to know or is it going to be endless clutter because while you might think that your attic has infinite space you know if you're moving into a new house and you say oh I've never had an attic before I don't have to throw anything out let me just start putting everything up there it's so big and all of a sudden you can't find anything and it's a total jumble um, and there's no more space Um, Holmes says no even though you think you have all this stuff clutter still is clutter and obviously there's that famous exchange where it ends up that Holmes tells Watson that he doesn't care about the Copernican system. He doesn't right. care about whether the Earth goes around the Sun or the Sun goes around the Earth or they have no nothing goes around each other. That it's totally irrelevant to him. He's exaggerating. He actually knows his astro- his astronomy but very well. He doesn't need to know it's Copernicus. But he <laughs> he doesn't. But he does. Um, he's exaggerating so that Watson will get the point, um, which is that you have to be very mindful about what you store. So the second the second stage after you kind of select is how are you how are you going to store it? And there the, the attic analogy is still very useful because if you just throw it up there, you're not going to be able to find it even if you're sure you will. Instead, you want to put it into boxes, into files, you want to label it, right? You want your attic to be organized and you want it to be cross-referenced so you don't just store things wherever they come in, you store like things together, you try to do as much as you can so that each new piece of information is somehow related into the tapestry, Um, you weave it into what you already know um, so that you become better able to have the last step, which is to take it back out again, um, because every single point of encoding is a point of retrieval. Right. So the more you can encode something, the more cues you will then have to take it back out. So, for instance, if I were trying to remember this breakfast, um, I would not just say, you know, okay, we had breakfast. I'd say, hmm, this is how the tea was tasting. This is, you know how I felt, I was hot, this was going on, you know, you, you try to basically... Link it to some more link sensory input. Exactly, to right. all of your, not, and not just sensory input, I would also try to link it to, you know, other breakfasts maybe that I've had at this place, or 
you basically try to try to create as much as you can so that you can then come back and pick it back out. So, so you think when, when Holmes was putting something in his, in his memory attic, he wasn't just giving it a linear label. He was, he was building multiple associative links. Exactly. He absolutely was. And that's why he's always able to say, oh, this is relevant because I haven't just encoded the case based on, you know, this is the mur- murder weapon or this is how it happened, but I have all of these links and so I suddenly can see these connections that otherwise would would be unknowable. It, it, it's Gmail, not Outlook. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, and I think a good way of thinking about it, which is why Holmes says that, you know, a well-organized attic is so important, is that you don't know everything that you've ever remembered you only for all intents and purposes know what you can recall at any given moment if i say oh i knew this oh what was it i don't know it because if i knew and know right now if i can't recall it i can't use it so it's only useful if you can recall it how does this change do you think in the 21st century where where so much of our memory is on platforms and devices um it changes a lot um there are we smarter or are we are we less equipped because we, we we don't know what we don't know both both um there was a very interesting study that came out unfortunately after after my book um, from Columbia University on something called the Google effect and what the researchers wanted to know was exactly the answer to your question what happens when you have Google right what happens to your memory what happens when all the information in the world is at your fingertips and so they had people uh, look at different information on the computer and there was going to be a surprise memory test, but they didn't know it. Um, and what happened was people who thought they'd be able to access it later on didn't remember it. They knew exactly where to find it, but they couldn't remember it. People who weren't told that they'd be able to find it later on couldn't re- uh, could remember it much better, and that was the Google effect. So basically, your brain is very smart. If it knows it can access it, um, it won't remember it. If it knows that it can't, it will remember it. Because why in the world would you use your attic space if it's readily available somewhere else? But in some ways, that study is really just for a dedicated memory task. But I'm wondering if, like, a, a 21st century Holmes in his attic now is just the meta structure of the information. Yeah. He may, he may not remember the exact detail, but he remembers the topography so he can. Well, so that's why, in a sense, it makes us smarter, because even Holmes back in his day did that, because he often tells Watson, go get the file about the Dutch murder from 1793. Right. Um, He knows exactly what he's looking for. He doesn't take all the details with him, because he has a filing system. He had his own Google. Right. Um, And... The, I think the art is in figuring out what's the information I need in my head and to know that that's how memory works. To not think that just because you've read it, you're going to remember it. To make a conscious effort whenever you actually want to remember something and to just take a step back when you say, you know, this isn't crucial, I know where to find it, let me just remember how to get there. So if you want to be really smart these days, given that you do have access to memory retrieval systems, what should you be paying attention to? I think that's a very individual question. It really, there's no overall answer. I think there's a step before that, which is 
you have to figure out what what is important to you and what your priorities are and what kind of a person you want to be. Right. You know, what do you... So Holmes was optimized towards solving crimes. Exactly. Right. Exactly. He probably wasn't so good at Tuscan cooking. Unless to the extent... Who knows? The use, the use of arsenic. <laughs> right. So, so you, you know, you, you have to... There's a step before doing any of this, which is kind of reflecting on who you are and who you want to become. You know, do you want to be the person who knows all the latest gossip about Justin Bieber? Because that's going to make its way into your attic, whether or not... That's a terrifying <laughs> idea. Or, if not, then, you know, w- what do you actually want to have at your disposal? And m- making that clear ahead of time actually really helps with your brain addict and with encoding because we are never ever going to be able to re-encode a memory. The only time we have control over it is at this initial... Of ingest. Yes, exactly. You can't go back and say, oh, I wish I'd remembered that better. Right. Um, and hypnotic um, memory, going back in memory, really hardly ever works huh. and is very dangerous because it's very easy to implant false memories. Right. Uh, so, so it's very difficult to retroactively change but proactively once you know the types of things that are important to you you become much better at taking it with you i feel like this in some ways this is really important to think about in this moment of time because there's this quite powerful argument about what is really the future role of human beings in making cognitive decisions Mm -hmm. given that machines algorithms are becoming so effective at making a lot of those observations and analytical decisions that we used to make Uh, and there's a certain irony that probably one of the most powerful systems on the planet is actually called Watson (laughs) it's true it's true but um, ultimately I think do you think you think you think human cognition still has a big role to play? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think is most misunderstood about Sherlock Holmes is he's called a computer. People call him an automaton. Hmm. They think that he has a computer-like mind, and that's simply not true. Um, the people who are computers are his counterparts, kind of the detectives who have a system and they know what they're supposed to do in certain things. They have you know commands and situations that they respond to. Holmes's genius lies in his ability to make creative leaps that no past experience dictates, to put information together in totally novel ways. And so, yes, part of that is computer-like in the sense that... What's that pattern recognition in some is that is in the, And that you need to gather the information and the computer needs to kind of figure out how to organize it. Um, and that's very similar, but ultimately... Computers can only really know what came before and what we've put into them. Um, And I think we keep getting smarter, to be perfectly honest, and I think that we're not at a point where, where computers can replace that sort of creative synthesis that can go even above and beyond pattern recognition, right. where all of a sudden you even see something that's not there. That's one of Holmes' strongest points. He sees what's absent, not just what's present. A computer can't do that. In some ways, the flip side of uh, sort of a searing insight of the truth of things is a unstoppable desire to believe in anything. Uh, and that's in some ways the uh, subject of your next book. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what led you to write about Conman? Sure. Um, it was in some ways a natural step from writing about Sherlock Holmes because you have this person who 
one would think cannot be fooled, this master detective. And yet he is fooled uh, multiple times. Um, Irene Adler obviously being the, the most well-known, but in other cases, like the case of the yellow face, which I won't spoil, <laughs> but he often has these, because he's so smart, he has these preconceptions that lead him to become overconfident, and then he becomes vulnerable to getting fooled. Um, and my next book, The Confidence Game, is all about how we can become blinded by the things we want to be true, um, so that we can become we become perfect victims. Um, and the point is that every single person can be fooled, even Sherlock Holmes. No one is immune to to a good confidence artist. What, what makes us ultimately? What makes us susceptible? I think ultimately it's a very deep-rooted human need in belief um, and to believe things. We hate living in an uncertain world. We don't like ambiguity. It makes us supremely uncomfortable. And we like things to have explanations. We like things to make sense. We like things to happen for a reason. You know, we, we try to rationalize the world. Um, and we need beliefs in order to do that because we're always constructing narratives in our own mind right. uh, which is one of the things that often prevents us from thinking like Sherlock Holmes because we're constructing other stories and kind of going off on our own tangents and even the narratives have the same structure uh, I think once Hollywood realized uh, from the work of Joseph Campbell there was yeah. kind of a almost an intrinsic human story structure we've, we've been watching the same movie ever since absolutely absolutely um, and that's I think at the end, why why con artists are so supremely powerful? Because every single person wants to believe in something. I mean, an existence where you don't believe in anything is really depressing. And in fact, people who are the most in touch with reality are clinically depressed. Um, that's a really interesting thing that psychologists have found over and over. Normal people with healthy psyches um, are really kind of overly optimistic about basically everything. You think you're better looking than you really are, you think that you're more talented than you really are, you just, and it doesn't have to be by a lot, but you just, you put a rosy glow on things, and the only people who are more objective are the clinically depressed, <laughs> and it's terrible. I mean, that kind of objectivity is actually really, really bad for the human mind. Um, so I'm guessing that if you're clinically depressed, you might be a little bit less susceptible to some con artists. <laughs> they, they probably wouldn't see that as an upside, though. <laughs> you look at the structure of, uh, of something like a long con, uh, which is a kind of almost like a, you know, extended form of storytelling. Um, how, how do you set up a con? What are the mechanics of, of, a, of, a, good, of a good con? Well, um, the absolute fundamental building block of a con um, is understanding human psychology. So the single most important part, if you're a con artist, is figuring out who your victim is and choosing the right victim. Because, yes, a good con artist can come into this hotel and con basically everyone there. They're not going to be as successful or be able to take everyone quite as far. So you need to really be able to size people up and to understand them and to read what they want to believe, um, what their beliefs about the world are, and to fit into their worldview so that you can then manipulate it for your own ends. So that's the absolute kind of 
that's the basis of any successful con. And from there, you you know, there are multiple steps to earning trust, and it's all it's all telling a story. It's all figuring out how to tell the most compelling story to get the person very engaged, emotionally engaged, um, feeling like this is important, like they have a stake in whatever outcome you're you're trying to pursue. Um, and then slowly you kind of change their view of reality. And I think one of the scariest things and also one of the most fascinating is a lot of people who are conned never know. They think that when they lose money or when something goes wrong or when their lover disappears that it was just bad luck that the universe was out to get them they're still within the confines of their story they don't believe and no matter what you tell them and there's some fascinating stories of people who refused to testify against con artists because even once they were in court you know on the stand with all of this evidence against them for criminal misdeeds they still believed in in the, in the man, because um, they, they often are men, um, and they believed in the story. When you look at politicians, leaders, even visionary um, heads of tech companies, who we won't name, <laughs> they, they also exhibit similar abilities to inspire and project you know, to, to get people to believe in their stories. Yeah. Uh, but they're doing it at scale. So how, how, how do you scale it up in this? I think you have to identify more macro fundamental needs. So when we're talking about, you know, a country that's going through turmoil, where there's really a lot of instability, that's a perfect time to give them something to believe in whether like that's religion yes whether that's religion um, religion usually is the most is the single most effective um, but it can be something else you know it can be a dream of economic prosperity you you give them something to believe in because you identify a more universal need it's not like this person needs love that's a one-on-one -on -one long con you're lonely you want to find the love of your life you're ready, I'm going to exploit that, I'm going to give you the love of your life, and you're going to give me everything you have in the process. Right. Um, but on a more universal scale, it's, you know, we want comfort, we want understanding, we want to feel like, you know, all this horrible stuff that's happening right now in our country is going to end, and that we've had to suffer this in order to get to a new, higher, more wonderful point in time. So you, you, that's how you scale it up. Sometimes that's benevolent though, right? Uh, absolutely, and I think um, there's a very thin line, you know, it's not black and white. There is kind of this gradation that goes from con artist to legitimate person in the business world, the political world, you know, whatever world we're talking about. And I think at the end of the day, it's a question of intention um, and, and what the intention of the con artist or non-con artist is. You know, are you doing it for your own kind of personal ends? Are you trying to get something personally for yourself? Um, and are you knowingly kind of changing reality a little bit? Or do you truly believe in what you're doing and you're trying to do it for, you know, some sort of greater good? Um, 
And honestly, even that distinction, though, starts blurring lines pretty quickly. Well, Marie, I, I definitely feel like I should be paying more attention to everything and, <laughs> and certainly be able to look out for more con artists. But tell me, are you still counting steps? No, I'm no longer <laughs> counting steps. In fact, I do not know. I'm in a third floor walk-up. I do not know how many steps lead up to the apartment. When you finally meet Sherlock, I'm sure he'll be very disappointed. I'm you? sure he will. I'm sure he will. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Great. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. Thank you.